Last Sunday night, we looked at God's judgment on sin and the question of whether it was right. And the passage that we looked at, I believe, illustrated that God is right to judge sin, whether it be the sin of His people or the sin of all peoples. And connected with that, God will be right when He pours out final judgment on sin. And last Sunday night was a general look at God's controversy with the nations, at God's punishment on sin, including His own people of Israel and Judah. And then this morning, we saw this idea of the day of the Lord and the timing of it, the order of events. And I think that we certainly don't want to read what we were looking at in Thessalonians back into the Old Testament as though the people that heard the Old Testament knew that truth when it was given in that time. And yet, looking at the whole of Scripture, I think it's important and helpful for us to look one more time at this concept of the day of the Lord to understand better how all of these things fit together. And tonight I want us to look at God's promise of judgment to a single nation, Babylon. And we looked at this to some degree last week from Jeremiah, a later prophet. Tonight I want us to look at it from Isaiah uh, to see also the relationship again between the day of the Lord and short-term judgment on a particular nation. And so turn to Isaiah 13, if you will. One of the primary questions that we have as we look at this passage is whether the entirety of the passage is about Babylon or is part of it about something other than Babylon and, and how do we know the difference between all of these things. In the first five verses, I believe that we see this. God will gather His servants to judge His enemies. If you look at chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand, that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the far farthest horizons, the Lord and His instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. And so we see, first of all, that God gathers His servants in verse 2 as one would gather an army. When it says, lift up a standard, it's, it's, it's almost like, here's, here's a flag. This is the sign where we're going to gather for battle. And so He's raising it up, and all the people that I'm summoning are going to gather to that spot and then go out to attack the enemy. What is their goal? Their goal is conquest. The, I think the end of verse 2 would, would say that to us. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. And there's a, a related passage in Isaiah 64, and the image is that God's conquest is going to be successful regardless of the fact of if you came before a king, what would have to happen for you to enter his presence? He'd have to admit you into the throne room. But in this case, God is the one who's deciding who's going to enter or who isn't. It's not the people themselves. It's not the king for certainly that he has passed judgment on. And so this shouting, this waving the hand that they may enter, it's, it's ironic that it's coming from the attacking force instead of from the king who would think that you'd think that he would be in charge of his own nation. And so we see this, that their conquest is going to be carried out. And they are gathered from various places. In verse 4, a sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people, nations gathered together coming from a far country. And so they're coming from more than one place and they are gathered to carry out this judgment. 
And God gathers His servants not just to gather them, but specifically to judge His enemies. We see this in verse 3. Uh, it says, to execute my anger. In the original, that word execute is not there, but the, the, I think the context clearly indicates that the goal is that these who are gathered are the ones who are going to carry out God's anger against the nation that He is calling into judgment. It's uh, interesting, as you look at verse 3, where it says, my consecrated ones, this is the sort of language that God sometimes uses to describe either His saints or the angels. But in this context, I don't think either is in view. They are consecrated by the fact that God has summoned them. They're set apart for a specific task. It's not that they are holy in and of themselves, because who conquers the nation of Babylon? It's the, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and they themselves were idolaters as well. So it's not that they were holy or consecrated in the sense of following God themselves. It's that they were consecrated for a specific task. And they, the task is for them to be instruments of indignation, as it says in verse 5. And again, it, it, it's interesting to see this grouping. It has the Lord as in His instruments of indignation. And generally you would think that the commander would be of the nation uh, that is being called up to battle, but ultimately saying, I'm the one who's the commander. It calls to mind perhaps in Joshua, it's the commander of the armies of God. And in this case... God is the one standing behind, directing, causing this to take place. And from a human perspective, this invasion would take place and it would appear to be simply a conquest like any other conquest. But God is saying here, this will be a carrying out of my judgment against the nation of Babylon. For what purpose? That they might destroy the whole land. We see this also in Isaiah 24. And so God is gathering His servants... Specifically, we will see at the end of the chapter and from the historical accounts, we see that this was carried out by the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And he is gathering them to carry out this judgment. But then we come to verse 6, and the tone seems to change for a moment. It is certainly connected. It is related. But we see this in verse 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. This raises the question for us of, is this referring to Babylon, or is this referring to some other time of judgment? And I would argue, based on some of the features of this middle section of the, of the chapter, that what Isaiah is doing is he is bookending what will take place in the last days with God's prophecy of judgment against the nation of Babylon as a specific and, and not immediate, but a near example of God's judgment against sin. And so I'd argue that verses 6 through 16 is God unveiling His wrath in the last days. What do we see about this wrath? It says in verse 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. What is the result of the revealing of this day? The result is wailing, sorrowing. Uh, this word is used in context with times of mourning because someone has died. It was used in multiple places when a people had been conquered or their homes destroyed or, or some great tragedy. There was wailing. There was weeping. And this is the response that will be connected with this coming of the day of the Lord. And we note also the source. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The source is God. This word Almighty is used as a title, a name of God, repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's a name which God uses to reveal Himself for example, to Abraham 
and often it's in context where it is a reminder of his power. There is a, a question uh, by many in our day of whether God is in fact all-powerful. Uh, some of the factors that contribute to us questioning whether God is all-powerful would be the fact that in our nation we have this uh, sort of almost built into our DNA, this idea of self-sufficiency. I decide things for myself. I go the way that I want to, do, want, want to go. And I think connected with this is perhaps the emphasis in our day on, on this idea of free will as being something where, where I can do whatever I want to do without reference to anything else. Obviously, in a non-religious sense, in our culture, that ends up looking like I can be whatever I want to be and do whatever I want to do, regardless of any reasons to do the opposite. It's important for us to remember that God is almighty because it reminds us that God is the one who is in charge. We are not the ones who are in charge. God is the one who directs the courses and the events of the world, and though we may participate in the unfolding of those events, we are still accomplishing God's purpose in that context, even as we saw this morning. And so I think it's important for us to remember that God is, in fact, all-powerful. We must make choices, but ultimately God is the one who governs nations and directs the paths of mankind. We have responsibility, but God is the one who is all-powerful to carry out His purpose, His plan. Not only is this day going to bring sorrow, not only is it come from the all-powerful God, but the day of the Lord will also bring pain. And we see in verse 7 and 8 a number of both physical and emotional responses. Look, for example, first the physical. Verse 7, therefore all hands will fall limp. And the, the picture here is this idea of you are caught like a deer in headlights. What do they do when, when you come up on a deer? They sort of freeze, right? That's why you end up running into them a lot of times. But we, uh, not we, but the people in this passage are so overcome by terror, are so overcome with the greatness of the day of the Lord and the implications of it for them that their hands fall limp and they, they, they stagger. They don't know what to do. So there's a physical response to the, the pain and the, the terror of that day. Uh, we see all, the, all this as well in verse 8. They will writhe like a woman in labor, and also pains and anguish will take hold of them. What's the parallel there? Uh, certainly, having a child is something that is a time of joy and, and, and all of those sorts of things, but that's not the part of it that Isaiah is focusing on. He's focusing on the fact that uh, perhaps the suddenness, but also the inability of a woman who is delivering a baby to do a whole lot about relief from the pain of the contractions. And it's not as though she can say, well, this is not the right time. I'm going to wait and do this in a few days. It's something that comes upon her. It seizes her. And in the same way, the people on whom the day of the Lord comes don't have an option saying, well, let's push this off a little bit longer. Let's wait a little bit for this to take place. It seizes them. They're overwhelmed by it. Not, there's nothing that they can do about it. We see also uh, emotional responses. Every man's heart will melt. What's the picture here? It's as though there, there's no strength in you. You're overwhelmed. You're terrified. What can I do? 
And then furthermore, it says in verse 8, they will be terrified. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been terrified, but there are, I think, moments that are terrifying. Um, it's perhaps not a, 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 the peak of examples that I could use, but one of the trips coming back from here, going back to the other house while we were in the process of moving, I'm getting off the ramp off of 94, and here comes someone flying up the ramp at me, coming on to the exit ramp. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't say that would be the greatest moment of terror in my life, but it was certainly one of them, because what am I going to do? You panic. I start to turn this way, and then they start to turn that way, and then I'm like, what am I going to do at that point? That is a, perhaps a poor example, but it illustrates at least a little bit this idea of the terror that, that is seizing the people in the day of the Lord. Their hearts are melting. They're terrified. In that moment, they don't know what to do. And that's intensified in, later in verse 8 where it says they'll look at another in astonishment. There's, there's surprise. There's just a being overwhelmed by the event. What am I to do? They turn the people around them. What are we supposed to do? They have no words. They have no answers. They look at one another in astonishment. The last phrase is more difficult. Their faces aflame. Uh, literally speaking, it's the idea of making red or, or like something being on fire. But I think here the significance is probably less about actual fire and more, I think, there's, there's three possibilities. It could be anger. It could be embarrassment. It could be fear. Generally, we don't associate your face turning red with fear, although that is a possibility. The reason I think someone might see that as, as connected with verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. But I think that the most likely understanding of that phrase is this, that they are overcome with shame. If you walk into a situation and you know you've had opportunity to be ready for that moment, whatever it is, a job interview, something else, and you do terribly at it, what feeling overwhelms you? It's shame. And what is the, the outward manifestation of that? Your face turns red, you start to sweat, you're, you're, you start to shake, what am I supposed to do? In this way, in a far greater sense, those who are overtaken by the day of the Lord will be taken by surprise, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, they will be caught off guard, it'll come like a thief in the night, and yet... When that moment comes, I think there will also be an awareness of God has given me opportunity to repent. I did not repent, and I am filled with shame. The day of the Lord not only brings pain and suffering, but it brings cataclysmic destruction. Look at verse 9 when it says, The day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. There's an intensified destruction, not just a conquest, but a desolation, not just a loss of life, but an extermination. And so that there, there is this sense of uh, not just that a few people will die, not just that uh, there will be a localized judgment on sin, but that God's wrath will be poured out. There's also an intensified disruption of the normal course of life. Look at verse 10. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. 
and the moon will not shed its light. If we connect this with the events described in Revelation, probably the closest parallel will be in Revelation 8 and verse 12, where it says that the constellations, a third of them will be darkened, a third of the moon will be darkened, a third of the sun will be darkened. Uh, what's the connection between that and this passage? Some have said, well, the reason that all these things are obscured is because it's when a, when a city, when a nation is conquered, there's smoke rising from the burning of various things, and so the, the sun is blotted out to a certain extent. I think that that will be true on some level, but I think it's more than that. I think there will actually be a darkening of the heavens. And this will be a reminder of the horror of sin. And we think about this perhaps in connection with the death of Christ. What takes place at the death of Christ? There is a, a darkening of that day because of the overwhelming sorrow, the, the, just the implication of sin. Sin is associated with darkness, with punishment, with it's not a day of light and rejoicing and gladness. It's darkness. And many times in the uh, Old Testament prophets, when it refers to this day, it describes it as a time of darkness and not of light. And so there's an intensified disruption of the normal uh, processes of life. The day of the Lord also brings punishment on sin, verse 11. I think we need to notice that this is not arbitrary. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It is possible for us, if we're in a position of authority, to be fickle or unpredictable in the way that we carry out punishment. You know, maybe a, a, a boss might give someone work that he knows they're not going to like because he just doesn't like that person. God's not pouring out judgment on the earth just to do it. God's pouring out judgment on the earth because the world deserves it. He says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. We have all committed sins. We are all rightly condemned, and those who have not obeyed the gospel and turned to Christ will be rightly punished in these events of the last days. But we see also that part of what God is accomplishing is to humble the proud. Consider uh, the end of verse 11. It says, I put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Those throughout history who have succeeded in their opposition of God, it's easy for them to take this attitude of, well, I haven't been punished, so I'm going to get away with it. Nothing's come to stop me, so it must be okay. And the coming of the day of the Lord is going to be a reminder for all those who have opposed God that they have not escaped God's judgment, that they have not gotten away with everything that, that they have done, and, and, and uh, this is perhaps by extension or by comparison to other passages, the greatest example of pride, I think we would say, is that of the devil who exalted himself against God. Here are people who, to a lesser extent, are following his example. And when he is brought down, how will they have any escape? So God's day uh, is bringing about punishment on sin, not arbitrarily, and also uh, to humble those who have been proud. The day of the Lord also brings an undoing of creation. Look at verses 12 and 13. When he says, I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir, that was a place where they would, where they would mine gold. We see it referenced in Job. We see it also referenced in 
uh, the time of Solomon. It's one of the places where gold was mined and added to Solomon's treasures. And uh, in Solomon's day, there was some abundance of it because of God's rich blessing on the nation of Israel. And yet, when you think of gold, why do we value gold? Because it's scarce. And that's the point of the comparison here. But he's saying not only will people be scarce like gold, he will make them scarcer than gold. What is the, what is the connection here? Consider back to creation. What did God say in the beginning in Genesis? He said, be fruitful and mil- multiply and fill the earth. And in this passage, we have almost a reversal of that. Here's a filling of the earth. Here's a wide-scale destruction of life on earth. We think back to what we looked at this morning where it talks about in Revelation 19 that the sword will come out and it will, of the mouth of the rider on the horse and he will slay all of the armies that are opposed against him. If there is this vast army that is gathered and it's struck down, then at least in part that will fulfill what is being spoken of here. Not only this contrast and and undoing of creation with regard to human life, but also a shaking of the very foundations of the universe. We see, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. And some people will say, well, that's probably just a figurative description. If that's the case, why does Peter refer to it and say that the uh, heavens will be shaken, they will tremble, that the heavens will disappear, that the elements will melt with fervent heat, that the earth will be laid bare. I believe that there will be something that happens to the actual earth at the time of the day of the Lord. And some would say that that is a complete destruction and then a recreation. Others would say that it is a, a recreation, a fixing of all the things that are wrong on the earth. On the earth. I would lean toward the second, but regardless... The point is that the earth is going to be so overwhelmed with the fury of its creator at its sin that the very earth and universe itself will be shaken. And when we see that picture, that's something that should make us recognize the seriousness of sin. Sometimes we say, well, you know, sin, I sin, I ask God to forgive me, it's not that big of a deal, but we look at this if God is going to shake the world that He has made in anger, it's something that we ought to take seriously. It says that the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. The day of the Lord will also bring a terrible suffering. We see this in verse 14. It will be like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them. People will be scattered like those who are hunted are like sheep that have no shepherd. They will be, uh, and it says at the end of verse 14, they will turn to his own people and flee to his own land. What happens when an army loses its leaders? What happens when a people have no, no leadership? Everybody just sort of turns and runs and they don't know what to do. They sort of wander about without any direction. That's the picture of what's happening here that the people are going to be overwhelmed by God's judgment. They're going to flee wherever they can go. Uh, In Revelation, it says that in their attempt to escape the terror of God's judgment, people will go into caves and into the mountains and saying, fall on us, it would be better for us to die in an avalanche or in a collapse of a tunnel than for us to face the wrath of God. 
But not only will people be scattered, but verse 15, people will die. It says anyone who is found will be thrust through. Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. And so people will be killed. Again, connected back to the passage in Revelation 19, I believe. This last verse is uh, difficult to consider. It says their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses plundered and their wives ravished. The, the picture here is of the horrific nature of sinful man without the restraint of God, behaving as wickedly as possible toward one another. We, we have in our day this concept of what is appropriate in war. Here's the things you can do. Here's the things you can't do. You can't use uh, nerve gas. You can't use certain forms of torture. You can't do all of these sorts of things. Why? Because we feel that it is unjust. We, we also have this idea, well, you shouldn't harm innocent people. One of the challenges of war in our day is that many of the people who have been in various conflicts see as a strategy, well, let's surround ourselves with innocent people and then no one will come after us. Well, then that creates a difficult choice. Do we violate what we believe about the importance of life, or do we go after the people that are behaving in an evil way? In the same way, in this passage, what it's saying in verse 16 is that the destruction that is coming, the overwhelming conflict between the nations as they rise up against each other and tear each other apart as part of God's judgment, they're going to resort to all kinds of acts of cruelty and violence and all of the things that we see war and we describe as the horror of war. I haven't experienced that firsthand. I don't know if any of you have, but we, we read accounts of these things, we see films of these things, we get brief glimpses of these things, of the horror associated with war. What's being described here is that in the same way, in the last days, nation will have conflict against nation, and they will behave wickedly, and they will rightly deserve God's judgment. And God will use their own wickedness for them to destroy one another. So we look at this, this interlude between verse 5 and verse 17, and we say... This is God's overwhelming judgment against sin. Why does Isaiah turn to that in the middle of this passage? I think he's doing this. Babylon is going to be an illustration of God's wrath and this complete and total destruction that is to come in the last days. And so I think we see in verses 17 through 22 that God will judge specific nations throughout history before the final day of judgment. The one particularly in view in this passage is the nation of Babylon. God will use, according to verse 17, one nation to punish another nation. What are some of the characteristics of this? You see, in verse 17, they will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. Sometimes in the context of one nation conquering another nation, you might look at this and you say, well, if this nation is willing to submit themselves and pay tribute and those sorts of things, they'll escape the punishment. God says, no, that's not going to be an option in this case. They will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, not because they don't value it for themselves, but because carrying out God's purpose and carrying out their own desires, 
their con the conquest is going to be more important to them than any sort of offering that the nation of Babylon could give them to turn aside their conquest. And if you look at the account in Daniel of how this conquest takes place, they come in the middle of the night, they take out the king and the rulers, and they, it, it's an immediate conquest. There's, no, there's like there's no opportunity for negotiation. And this fits with what it says here in verse 17. Verse 18, Their bows will mow down the young men, no compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. Again, here is a nation that is cruel coming after the nation of Babylon, which was itself cruel. Among other things, they, uh, many believe that they practiced child sacrifice in the worship of their gods. They committed all sorts of sinful acts. And God is using one wicked nation to punish another wicked nation. And yet the nature of that punishment is that they don't even have compassion on children, on those who are innocent. Now it's interesting because God will in turn cast down the nation of the Medes and Persians for much the same reasons that he cast down the nation of Babylon and for much the same reasons that he cast down the nation of Israel and Judah. Why? These sinned. God punished them with another nation. That nation persisted in sin. God punished that nation with another nation and so on and so forth. Now, I do think that we have to be careful because it's easy sometimes for people to see in our days our particular nation and to think that some of these specific things apply to our country in the same way that they apply to the ones that are specifically described in Scripture. I think we have to be cautious about that for two reasons. Usually, that sort of viewpoint is connected with a misusing of promises given to Israel to apply them to the United States. So we have to be careful of not doing that because if they're given to Israel, we can't say, well, God's going to give us houses and wealth and lands in the same way that he promised Israel that he would give house and wealth and lands if they followed him. And secondly, I think that we, we look at this, it's speaking specifically of the nation of Babylon. Now, what is the point of application for us today? I think it's very true that if we as a nation behave wickedly, we can expect God to punish that at some point. We don't know the time of that. We don't know the specific nature of that. But we should not expect that if God punished the nation of Babylon after they had punished the nation of Judah, and then God later would punish the nation of Babylon using the nation of the Medes and Persians, if God had these successive judgments throughout history, why would we think that we would be the exception to the rule? Unless we think how horrific the Medes and Persians are, do we as a nation have compassion on children? Do we in various cases uh, behave wrongly as a people? I don't say that we bear full responsibility for that individually. But I think we have to recognize that being in a nation that behaves in some ways similarly to the Medes and Persians or to the, to the Babylonians, there is the, the, the distinct reality that at some point God will punish our nation for behaving in that way. What will God's punishment bring? It will bring devastation. It says in verse 19, Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride. Chaldeans were a 
subset of the ethnicities in Babylon. Later they became specifically referring to the, like the priestly class in the time of Daniel. It says, will, as, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the point of comparison here? Does anybody live in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's held up as a consistent example of God's judgment against sin and as a consistent warning of the complete destruction that comes when God pours out His wrath against sin. And we see that in verse 20. It says, It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will the shepherds make their flocks lie down there. The, the picture here is that here's a place that will be so devastated by war and so under the wrath of God in terms of His judgment that even the wandering peoples are not going to go there and even the people who, who take their sheep around to different pastures are going to avoid there. Why? There's nothing there for them, at least in part. What will it be like instead? Desert creatures will lie down there. Their houses will be full of owls, ostriches, shaggy goats, Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious places. Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. Only animals will live in the wilderness of where it used to be. And we look at this and we say, we should pause and we should look at this and say, God took the sin of Babylon seriously. So what do we see in this passage? In Isaiah 13, I think God uses His judgment on Babylon to uh, sort of as bookends on either side of a description of His judgment in the last days. I think part, in part this is why Babylon is used in Revelation as a representation of the world system opposed to God because it was one of the prime examples of God's judgment in the Old Testament. John alludes back to, I think, this passage and others when he makes that reference, that comparison. The day of the Lord will be God's final judgment against sin, but there are many lesser days of the Lord's judgment that serve as warnings to us about God's hatred of sin and God's justice against the ungodly. What should we do with a passage like this? And we've looked at several of these passages in the last few weeks, and they are, they are heavy, they are sobering, they are serious. What, what should we do when we see passages like this? We should not look at a passage like this and say, man, they really had it coming. I'm glad I'm not them. We should instead say, in what ways am I like them? In what ways has God rescued me from being like them and I need to continue turning away from being like them? Secondly, what sort of people should we be in light of these coming judgments? That's the argument that Peter makes. If the heavens and the earth will be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in all holiness and godliness. And then thirdly, if these things are true, am I learning from the sinfulness and God's attitude toward it and having it affect my own life, but also am I looking at the people around me and saying, always having in the back of my mind, God's judgment is coming. And we talked about this this morning. If I believe that these things are true, and I know that they are true in part, not only because God said them, but also because we've seen the evidence of them taking place, if I believe that these things are true, how does it affect the conversations I have with people who don't know God? Because 
they are in a space where they have opportunity to repent, much like the nation of Babylon had opportunity to repent. Why do I say that? Consider the story of Jonah. That I know was the nation of Assyria, a different country, but what happened? Jonah took the message, the people turned away from their sin, and God delayed the judgment. Had Babylon turned from their sin, had they heeded the, the example of Nebuchadnezzar when he turned to God after what God put him through, I believe that God would have at least delayed their judgment. But they did not. And so for the people around us, let us pray that they will trust in God. Let us be clear as we speak the gospel to them. And let us live in such a way that what we're doing doesn't undermine the message that we're bringing to them. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming because past judgments pointed to it and those have been carried out. It's coming because God keeps His word. Do we believe it? Does it affect the way that we live on a daily basis, both in how we behave ourselves and in how we interact with the people around us? Let's pray. Lord, as we have looked at your word tonight, these are, are difficult truths to consider. We need your help to be reminded of them regularly. We need to be motivated to uh, take the truth of your word around us because everyone who does not bow the knee to you will face this sort of judgment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, take this passage to heart tonight and even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.